Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough podcast, everybody. In light of current world events going on with Russia and the Ukraine, I have pushed the emergency dispatcher episode I had ready for today. In favor of this interview, I did with a China expert, Jason Scheftel, who has over 10 years of first-hand experience with China and a book coming this year. He also has a podcast named China Unravel. If you are looking for further info beyond the tip of the iceberg that we go into today. Keep in mind, this was recorded about a week before the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, so we do talk a lot about potential events which then actually happened, as well as some things that may still be on the horizon. We get into geopolitics at about 15 minutes in, if you can't wait to get to that content, but do remember that everything in this episode is designed to give you better insight into China and what created the country that you see today. Let's learn about China, but not Chinese, because it is way too complex. Welcome to the show, Jason Scheftel. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Uh, Why don't you tell everyone a little about yourself? Sure. So I'm a bit of a China expert. I'm here trying to explain some of the stuff that's going on as the world gets more and more crazy. And I'm trying to go far and wide, trying to get a little bit more understanding about China, the US, kind of where things are headed, how we got here, and just answer some of the questions that people never really get answered about the country and even just what's going on, right? Everything's gotten so crazy that I'm just here to help. Yeah, everything is definitely crazy and it it leads us to like where do we start you know what do we need to know about china as a country just like what what is its basic formation sure so everyone looks at china on a map and you think wow that is a big red country it's enormous it's enormous physically the territory is about the same size as the united states the population is at least four times larger and it's just big and The real challenge with China is always scale. The scale of everything is so large that it really is a formidable obstacle to understanding the country. And so it's not just the size of the population and the size of the territory, it's the diversity and the age and the variety. All of this makes it very hard. And But the first thing to know is actually that China isn't one giant, enormous, monolithic place. It is many, many different regions and peoples really kind of cobbled together under various empires over the the centuries. And it's very similar to the United States, where let's say you and I met in a bar in Washington, D.C. We were both from the U.K. or something or Germany. And we're like, all right, we're going to learn English and learn uh, what the United States is like by living in Washington, D.C. Right. It's kind of hard. It's kind of similar. Even if you go sit in Hong Kong or you sit in Beijing for a while, just that isn't enough. And it's really a larger place. And in particular, these peoples, these groups, these regions, they don't get together. They don't really sit together very well. You need an empire, whether a sort of communist dictatorship or a traditional Chinese empire to keep things together. And as what we're seeing really right now across the board is the the, the Chinese state just clenching its fist once more as it tries to make sure all the various pieces of China don't go spiraling out of control or into some sort of chaotic warlord-like battle royale. Yeah, it's definitely, 
you know, it, it looks huge on a map. And I guess I never thought about it in relation to the US because it just seems giant. But it, it seems like everything you see, you know, depicted from China, uh, at least in popular media, comes like off the East Coast of some form, doesn't it? The East Coast of China? Yeah. Yes, that's correct. So the core population centers, the core economic zones, the major historical cultural regions in China, they're all primarily along the coast. There's two major inland ones, but everything else is along the coast. And in particular, it's along the the northern coast of China, which is basically a large plain with some big cities people have heard of, right? So there's Beijing, obviously. There's another city called Tianjin. There's some now there's more a couple port cities. That whole region, the North China Plain region, is one of the major regions in China. It's where the political center of China is located. And then there's the the Yangtze River Delta, which is just south of that. That's where Shanghai is. That's where the money typically is in China, right? That's where the the great sort of inland ports and transportation networks and capital generating region are, are really located. And then in the south, really all along the south of China, you have a bunch of small city states, basically functionally city states. That's not a, a PC in China to say, but basically all these sort of small coastal port cities, the major one being the people in the West are aware of would be Hong Kong, but also historically in that same Pearl River Delta, which is the, the second big Delta in China. It is the, the Southern zone. And that's also where Guangzhou is. That is where the sort of major Southern trade in China has happened. That's also where a lot of manufacturing and the new city of Shenzhen is founded. And that's, that's where most of the development in China has happened. There's a huge split in China between all the wealth on the coast, which is a lot of these cities are, are modern. They're, they're modern in the way of a European or Japanese or American city is. Then you move inland, you move away from these regions and it gets grimmer. It gets darker. You start to, you know, when I was there, I've see, you'd see places that don't have sanitation. They don't have all sorts of basic things that you take for granted. So it is 100% true that what we see of China, what we imagine China is, is primarily this sliver of coastal China, which has a large population. But even there, it is not quite what we're always imagining it. Because again, the scale question is so big. This is a small percentage of China. And it's a small percentage of the Chinese population overall. The rest of it is not quite, it's not quite like the United States either, where you have a very widely or historically you had a much more widely distributed amount of sort of wealth, right? You had sort of small towns, small cities, all this stuff that were basically there's places like Missouri has a higher per capita GDP or Mississippi has higher. No, I think it's Missouri has a higher cap per capita GDP than Germany does, right? The, the level of overall aggregate sort of wealth by person in the United States is very high. It is not high in China. It is like a pittance, right? So that's a big thing to always keep in mind is that the coast, which we see is there, it exists, it's real, but it's not the whole picture. Yeah. Well, it sounds like, you know, when you compare it to the U S like you said, they have four times the population we do. Um, it does not seem like it is evenly dispersed, at least when you see, you know, images from the coast areas where they have, you know, massive skyscrapers, like they're building a, a mega city. Is that fairly accurate? That's also accurate. Yeah. So I usually, the, the, pro, the reason I say four times, the actual amount of people in China is a bit up for up in the air. The Chinese state has been lying about the size of the population for at least 15 years. So on, you know, the, on the ground number, like their official number would say it's about four and a half times larger than the United States, but it's probably 
150, 200 million people less. So I just say, you know, between four and four and a half or whatever, but that that's true. And yeah, that's also right that the density question is real. So the reason you see these giant urban areas, right, all over China, if you go, if you travel around China, you'll see massive cookie cutter industrial cities that are like identical wherever you go, same gray skies, same looking buildings, all this, it's all over the place because the population is heavily, heavily, heavily concentrated in a few areas. Most of China is not suitable for human settlement. Most of the country that you see on a map, a lot of the regions in China, that people think are very impressive. They're mostly, historically, they're actually basically <laughs> like a security perimeter. They're basically like barbed wire fences that the old Chinese states and the current state create to protect this these core regions that were the historical agricultural zones, the historical regions that had large populations. And that is still kind of the way it is. That's why you see a intense security presence in Xinjiang in Northwest China, where the, the Uyghur population is. That's why you see the same thing in Tibet. That's even why you have problems in more peripheral coastal regions like Hong Kong, which had the colonial presence in Taiwan, which was, which is a, yeah. A, it, it has its own government and historically was colonized by the Japanese starting in 1895. So all of that is true. So when you look at China on the map, again, if we take it back to that big map that we all see, we see this massive country. If you could see the population density, you'd see it's like, God, I don't know, 70% of it is like not inhabited, right? 70, 70-ish percent of it. And also another thing to keep in mind is the, not only is it sort of not inhabitable, but it's also like vicious, rugged terrain. So around 60%, 66% of China is mountainous or hilly. In the United States, it's about the opposite. You have about 33% hilly and the rest is all flat. And flat ground is very important. I know this is going to sound weird to people. They're like, why is this dude talking about flat ground? But if you want railroads, if you want roads, if you want uh, large farms, if you want anything like that, flat ground is great. Flat ground with good water, with all that kind of, uh, kind of stuff is the key, one of the, some of the key ingredients to large self-sustaining countries and civilizations. So it's, it's very important. And China does not have that outside of these regions I was talking about along the coast and two inland regions. It's uh, basically brutal, rugged mountainsides everywhere. And we, we can see that. Look at the pictures of China. There's always these crazy mountain peaks and there's like the, the river snaking through it, particularly in the, that's typically those are images of the Yangtze region, which is accurate, right? The Yangtze has, it's a phenomenal river. It's very good for Chinese integration, economic development, all that kind of stuff. But there's still mountains all around it, right? It's not as good as it could be if it was just flowing through a very large, flat, open plain. And I know this is obviously getting back to very old school economic development stuff. We're not talking about industry and ports and factories and just kind of manhandling the environment through sheer industrial strength and will. But that's still the platform that everything else is built on. So if you look at high-speed rail, for example, where a big reason that China can have high-speed rail and the United States never will is because the same density, this population density that you see in Europe and you see in Japan, you also see in China, really works for high-speed rail. And they also got the, the massive scale to build it. But the other thing you see if you're in China and you're, you're looking at the high-speed, if you just look at images of high-speed rail trains in China, they're all built on aerials, right? So they're all built on these basically a bunch of pylons and they just zoom across the landscape. And the reason they do that is because that lets you artificially create the flat land that you don't have, right? So you're just, it's more expensive, and but it's also, you need that for the efficiency. You need that in the same way. Meanwhile, if you look at the United States, it's freight rail system. So the United States doesn't have a very good passenger rail system. It has a terrible passenger rail system, 
but it has an, a, it has the best in, the best freight rail system in the world. And the part of the reason you actually have this is because the freight, like China has a very bad freight rail system, but it's good passenger rail. We basically just made different choices and it fits the United States more. But in the United States, you have these giant, enormous rail systems that are all running on flat ground and it's very easy. And also another thing for flat ground, uh, which I'll stop talking about pretty soon. Don't worry. The, uh, the second you start creating a grade, an incline, it requires more energy. It can do less work. You can't go as far. You need more fuel. It starts creating all these problems. Like the cost of everything goes up, just going up a little incline. And we know that when we're hiking, it's like, oh, wow, it's so easy to walk down the street versus let me walk up the hill, right? Let me walk through San Francisco. It's the same thing for any sort of vehicle. The energy costs, the energy requirements are higher. The efficiency is lower and the overall economic cost and economic efficiency is lower. So all that stuff matters. And it does get back to the same question, the same fact of extreme density, population density, and very minimal quality land in China overall compared to the size of the population. Yeah, no, you know, you're right when you say it, that is very important. It's not like we have a, a heavily industrialized mountainous area in the US. So it's like, oh, well, why don't they uh why don't they cultivate that? I mean, we're not doing it. So why would you expect them to? On just just to just to build on that just really quick, West Virginia is a great example of like a place that everyone's like we got to help West Virginia get back to what it had, you know, before, you know, coal started to decline and all that, but you know, a lot of regions in China are roughly speaking similar to West Virginia and you can't, you know, once the ship has sailed or the ship never arrived, kind of is what it is. It's very, very hard, very expensive to do things. And even when you do it, it often doesn't last. It's just the way the cookie crumbled, unfortunately. Yeah, that is unfortunate. But it's one of those things about, you know, earth, I guess, geography. It's just some areas are going to be like that. And until we figure out a better way to, you know, a giant space laser to cut the level ground, like you're just not going to not going to have it. Nope, you're not going to have it. Yeah, it's definitely the way it works. And geography is really something everyone should keep in mind as our world starts to change more and more. What we're seeing is actually geography is becoming more and more important. What kind of happened after 1991, the fall, the end of the, the end of the Cold War, fall of the Soviet Union, and the beginning of our extremely globalized world, or what we call a globalized world, which was never nearly as globalized as we think, but nonetheless, extremely globalized in comparison. It, this stuff is all kind of breaking apart. That's what we're seeing, right? We're seeing the threads interconnecting this heavily interconnected world. They're kind of ominously coming undone. And what happens as that happens is that geography surges back into importance. So whether it's the, like the Dnieper River in Ukraine, where there's basically a standoff between the West and Russia, or the seas around Taiwan, or any other area where you need let's say certain minerals or materials. So maybe you need cobalt in the Congo. Maybe you need, right? It just goes on and on. And all of these things were abstracted away during the sort of US-led era of post, you know, 1990, post-1991 globalization. And once that's gone, all of these little problems, all of these little supply chain issues, all of this stuff, the actual capacity of a port, right? All this stuff comes back into prominence. So part of what I'm trying to do is trying to give people a good framework for looking at these things. And a, a lot of it is actually very simple. It doesn't require all that much like to think that, to realize that flat ground is useful <laughs> and, and surprisingly <laughs> rare. It's simple, but it's like, it's, it's simple in the way that a lot of basic math is simple, but it's the building blocks to things that can be 
give you very important and intricate and correct answers to things. So that's part of something that everyone should keep in mind for sure. Sure. And I wanted to address one more geography piece real quick, just because it is important, you know, as much as like Russia and the Ukraine have a thing right now, um, China touches a lot of other countries. Yeah. Most in the world. Yeah. So, I mean, do they have a lot of border dispute problems? Yeah. Over 50% of China's neighbors claim some of its territory. Interesting. Because I know they share an enormous border with uh, Russia, but they also touch, you know, like what India, Korea. uh, It's like everyone. (laughs) Yeah. They touch Afghanistan, everybody out there and everything. And even if it's the Western part that touches, I would think the most other places, and it's not necessarily something they're using a lot. Are they very like defense oriented about those areas? Yeah, hundred percent. So the Chinese military in general, until really 2015 was an entirely defensive military. And so you mentioned a lot of key historical flashpoints. So the late 1970s, there was very, they got very close to conflict with the Soviet Union in the Northwest, and they went to war with, and they went to war with uh, uh, Vietnam at the same time. There's been skirmishes with India, even in the last few years in the Himalayas. It really just goes on and on. And the the key thing is to realize that the Chinese state, all Chinese states, especially sort of a, an integrated one that sort of conquered the, the main regions in China, they're all defensive. It, the the very geography in China creates a a, a bunkered, defensive, reactive mentality because there's it's so open and vulnerable in a lot of ways, right? So you don't want to have as many neighbors as China has, right? The United States has two neighbors, right? And precisely 0% of the US military is designed to, to think about them or to fight them, right? There's very few contingency plans for an invasion by Mexico. Do, do you know what I mean? There's no, you know, the National Guard could deal with Canada. You don't even need, you know what I mean? So all this stuff is, is very different thing. And so that's part of the reason the United States is going around the world with aircraft carriers because it doesn't really have to worry about its home base. China can't really do that. And that's something everyone should always keep in mind where you often you often see a country that's as large as the United States, very big, very powerful. And the same way that the, the territory isn't quite what it seems like under the surface and the population size and distribution isn't quite what it seems like once you sort of look deeper. It's a very similar thing for where the country is in general, right? It's it's surrounded by all these countries that it has not just like bad relations with, but like historically horrific relations with for generations, for, for, you know, for centuries, right? It occupied Vietnam for over a thousand years, right? It had a brutal colonial, con- it, was, it was brutally con- uh, conquered by Japan for decades in the 20th century. And it just goes on and on. It's invaded Korea God knows how many times for like ritual invasions, every, every other dynasty, basically. And this just goes on. So it's it's a deep challenge. And there's challenges from every direction and in different ways, right? So you have the question of sort of Islamic extremism on the in the Western regions. You have Tibetan nationalism and basically attempt to create any sort of indigenous political authority in that region, although it's not as big as it once was. And then obviously you have the longstanding historical animosity between Vietnam and China. The last war China fought late 1970s was with Vietnam. And in Vietnam, they barely remember the United States. Vietnam, we remember the Vietnam War. They don't remember the Vietnam War. They remember China, the big dog right above them, right? And they're they're always ready for, not always ready for another round, but that's a long-standing historical enemy. 
And then you just, it goes, it goes on and on, right? China also claims basically the entire South China Sea. So it has put itself up against all of the island nations that surround that region. So it is basically a country that's very embattled from a security perspective and from a di diplomatic perspective. It doesn't really have anything you'd consider, the US would consider an ally like the way we do, right? Even countries like Pakistan and North Korea, they're not exactly the, the guys you bring to, I don't know, a fight or a, a, any kind of event, really. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, do you see them, you know, amping up their their military aggressiveness as everyone kind of looks around the world and they see more air, more countries like Russia? And we keep saying, you know, very kind of aggressive statements. Do you see them kind of utilizing that to push some some military goal? Yeah, so this world that we've kind of known is, is breaking down, like I was saying. And part of what we're seeing actually is the United States is becoming more aggressive in a different way, right? So for a long time, the United States was very important, basically was the key factor in creating the pillars of our liberal world order, basically. And that kind of stuff is all crumbling. And so we're seeing the United States not quite know what to do and, and how it's doing its foreign policy, neither Trump nor Biden quite know what the world they're stumbling into looks like. And they don't know how to respond. And particularly Russia, there's no other country that makes the United States more paranoid and, and freaks it out and just makes it irrational and basically like psychotic when, except then Russia, right? For whatever reason, the power of the Soviet Union back in the day, the decades preparing to fight it, all the James Bond movies, God knows what, the, the reactions uh, against Russia are always extremely strong. And Russia is just not what it once was, right? It is not the Soviet Union. Russia is a country that has a, you know, an economy the size of South Korea and a military budget the size of the United Kingdom. It can barely maintain any of its military forces. It can't even really, it's getting to the point where it can't even really staff its military at all because it's losing so many people due to population decline. It lost a million people last year. And also the population is aging. And a lot of the really talented people in Russia are basically retiring, right? So this whole cohort of well-educated, very productive workers across industries in, in Russia, they're basically falling, going to sleep, taking a nap, right? Retiring. And this is part of the reason why Russia hasn't been able to basically mass produce any new weapon system in the last like 15 years. It's, it's big new tank, can't do it. Big new uh, uh, fighter jet, can't do that. The entire Navy is basically bunk except for submarines. And I'm not here trying to minimize Russia's uh, threat. As countries like Russia and China see what the world looks like and see what, what's, what's really going on, which obviously I could get into more, they feel very threatened and very nervous. And it's very likely that they will, almost inevitable that they will use military force in some way to try and deal with some of these problems. Particularly countries like Russia and China, military force is kind of in Russia's case, especially, it's like the last kind of force you really have outside of like weird propaganda campaigns and assassinations and stuff like that. It's tough, but they're really in a bind. If you're in, if you're Russia, you're in a fundamental bind. Like Russia, it's a country that's always struggled to be part of the modern industrial world. It's, you know, it envied it when it was in the 19th century and it tried to be a European country. And then it had to like brutally Leninize, Stalinize itself into becoming an industrial nation. But all of this was a very difficult, very wrenching process. And yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't end well, right? That, that's unfortunately the, the way it looks. But you are right. So I'll, I'll get back to the China thing. But you are right that the United States is being 
more aggressive. It's almost like it doesn't quite realize, you know, what other countries are dealing with, I guess. Like if you're Russia and you produce less than 5% of the electronics that you need, the only, your only basically goods that you produce are basically raw materials. You're losing a lot of the export market in defense articles to countries like China. You can't even develop new defense you know, weapons systems anymore outside of basically missiles and some planes and some stuff. It's a, it's a dicey time. And I do think you're right that the, yeah, I mean, you got it, use it while you have it, right? That's part of the, the thought process here. Use it while you have it, at least for Russia. As for China, China has real problems, uh, bigger problems. It has a much more capable military and a more developed and more recently modernizing military. And it's doing a, a military buildup and a naval buildup that is hasn't been seen in a very long time. And it has real pressing problems, particularly for the, the Chinese Communist Party. The issue of Taiwan is looming larger and larger. And Taiwan, there's a lot of naughty problems if you want to try and conquer Taiwan, which is probably a whole kind of podcast itself. But the problem for the party is that it's running low on authority and legitimacy in China. The, it, the economic growth that it has run on for the last you know, 40 years, that's fizzling. The even protecting the population through you know, COVID measures, that's starting to backfire. People are really sick of it. And nationalism is a huge part of what makes things run now. And nationalism, often a good way to feed that is to you know, have the nation assert itself. Sure. And there's so many touch points now that I realize like, oh, I got to get to a lot of these that I want to talk about um, because you're talking about their government, which uh, if I'm right in the guess is the CCP. Good. I'm glad I understand that one. And they are, seems very aggressive uh, towards their own people, even in that just before everything kind of went into shutdown mode and everyone stopped looking at other countries, they had like some serious riots and demonstrations on their hands from people like calling for the end of it. Yeah. The Chinese state doesn't have the relationship between the Chinese state and Chinese society. It's not like what we see in the West at all. So this is a state that, like I said, is trying to keep a very large heter, you know, non-homogeneous population of very different people and places together as one in a unified group. And what that typically requires is a big hunkin iron fist right when once you're no longer producing the goods the gravy train has stopped running all you really got are social controls so one of the things we're seeing as covid is ending is you know getting towards the end or at least we're entering year three of covid and we're seeing kind of where the, how the the new lay of the land the covid measures that china has taken and i have a podcast on this from the early in the pandemic it's a the episode was it called uh, beyond the quarantine this was back in early 20, 2020 i was talking about how what china's doing with its quarantines was not really a public health measure it was really the mobilization of internal security resources that china has developed so like iran like russia like a lot of states that are very focused on you know keeping a country together they don't have a sort of naturally unified or naturally integrated system like or a federalized system like the United States to kind of have to do this by force. China has a massive, massive budget for internal security. It spends more on its internal security than its external defense, right? So that's more to keep the population, Chinese population in line than to keep the United States uh, you know, at bay, right? So that's a, that's a really kind of always important thing to know. But historically, the Chinese people are always 
getting mad at the Chinese, at the Chinese government. And it's not really the fact, and I'm, I'm no fan of the Chinese communist party, but this is kind of, China is not an authoritarian megastate because it's communist, right? It's an authoritarian megastate because it's China. And that's what China has always been whenever it gets the chance to be China. So that's a key thing here. We're getting back to the, the geography point, the, the, the character, almost the personality of different nations, they don't emerge randomly, right? And you can't turn someone or turn some country into something. It's not just like you can't turn some person into something. It's not, it's really shaped by the region it lives in, you know, that it is in, that it is, right? In a sense, China is that region. And this is something that's sort of fallen out of favor and fallen out of our consciousness and our understanding, again, starting in the 1990s. Uh, economics ruled everything. Everything else is kind of booted out. Everything turned into like very shallow journalistic style analysis of things, kind of boosterism, a sense of technological progress in, in internet progress, changing the world, unifying everything, all the barriers and borders and boundaries were all disappearing. We kind of forgot that all these barriers and borders and boundaries are what actually formed these places in the first place. So China has a permanent problem with the Chinese people, right? It is both its greatest resource and its greatest threat, but also the Chinese people are stuck. If you're Chinese and you're living in mainland China, you're stuck with the communist party as far as the next few decades are concerned. The other option is not democratic. It's, it's, the other option is chaos. The other option is a battle royale of warlords, more or less. And this is kind of the way it's always been, right? And so a strong conceit, the US, a little line the US would always throw out, particularly during the Cold War was, oh, we support the Venezuelan people, but not the leadership of Venezuela. And we've, the United States has loved to do that for a long time. Sometimes it's good, often it's bad. Very often it's just strategic and kind of uh, doing other things. But in China's case, you can't really separate the two. If you're in mainland China and you're, you know, you're under the Chinese government, you are, you know, you're one thing. You are one, it's one people, one place. And that's a challenging thing for all of us to understand and to deal with. And there's not really a good answer to this. So the reason I've talked about this when you brought up the potential for social instability, perhaps revolution, is that this is the norm in China. It's a churning, it used to be peasant rebellions endless churning thousands and thousands of peasant rebellions like you wouldn't believe. And now, I mean, it could you know, be worker rebellion, something like that is not uh, very, it's not impossible. But the thing to remember is that there's not really a, some great paradise on the other side of this. And unfortunately, that's kind of a, a theme for the general world that we're moving into. Like a great example is Tibet and Xinjiang, where Tibet, right, I've been to Tibet and it's a very nice, very beautiful place. And the Tibetan people are, you know, they have a, they have an independent identity to, to the rest of China, like just like the Uyghurs do, but there's also no world in which Tibet could be an independent nation and not be desperately poor and impoverished. There's no way. There's also no way that Xinjiang could be anything else. And I'm not supporting what the Chinese communist party is doing there. I'm not supporting Chinese behaviors. There. I'm not saying it's all futile, but I just think we need to always understand that, if, you know, if something like China, China breaks up, you're not going to see all these happy, free peoples finally sort of expressing themselves and living their true lives and their true selves without any fear of oppression. It's more brutal, crushing poverty. And not that that isn't already a, a everywhere, but we, we gotta, we gotta move beyond this like weird sense of just liberation. It's almost like a liberation theology everywhere. It's like liberate, liberate, liberate. It's like, yeah, we do want people to liberate. But meanwhile, we spent 20 years in Afghanistan and 
nothing changed, right? And that's and quite literally, Afghanistan is right next to Tibet and Xinjiang. And for the same geographic reasons why these places are brutally, miserably poor, uh, you we can't just solve this. And I'm not saying there's no there's no way to be optimistic, but we need new technologies. We need a, need a lot of new things if we want to actually help different places and different peoples and different regions do by doing more than just running on enthusiasm and optimism and hope. We do need more, and we don't have it right now. Right, right, and it's it's one of those that like you look at any area in the world that is broadly supported by some kind of a a government funding. And you're like, yeah, they might be miserable. And if you cut them off, like they're probably just going to be more miserable and now also unsupported, um, even though it sucks. Uh, And it makes me think about all the areas, you know, like you've mentioned in China that do have uh, some major, you know, very public opinion about how they don't agree with Chinese kind of politics, uh, like Taiwan. And I don't know much about Taiwan, so that's where I'm going to stop talking about it. But I'll let you kind of explain, you know, what when people hear Taiwan talking about being a a separate area, you know, what are they talking about? Yeah, so China has Taiwan is, you know, one of the many historical regions in China, although it's not really part of the ancient one. So China really came together as a single place in the first millennium B.C., really the second half of the first millennium BC, so 500 BC to like zero AD-ish time. Uh, Taiwan didn't really appear actually until like 1500, around there. It didn't appear really to the Ming dynasty. It didn't really show up during the Song dynasty, which is a very powerful, the best, the greatest Chinese dynasty, in my opinion, and a, a particularly a naval-oriented one, a maritime state more than other Chinese states had been, and didn't really show up there either. So it is a new and recent addition to China. But the, the ironic thing in all this is that it really, China, Taiwan really came on the map during the Ming Dynasty when actually, actually towards the end of the Ming Dynasty, when basically the, the, there was a big civil war between the future Qing and the Ming Dynasty. The Ming losers fled to Taiwan. And a big reason why we know there wasn't a lot of activity in Taiwan is because the indigenous people of Taiwan were a indigenous people. And part of their male initiation tradition was to have their young uh, hormonal males go and basically headhunt people who arrived on the island, right? So kind of tough to just, you know, make friends when that was, when you'd arrive and you'd see like, you know, it's like the equivalent of like, if modern kids playing Call of Duty, like they were, they had to go as their like, sort of their entrance to manhood, they had to go like grab a scalp, right? From anyone who landed on the nearby beach, probably not the kind of place that was really integrated into anything. But point of this being is that when that Ming dynasty lost, it fled to Taiwan. It actually did the same thing that we see today, where the losing Basically, the story of Taiwan recently is there was a, a Chinese civil war in the 1940s, and uh, the communists won, and the nationalists uh, fled to Taiwan. And that is, the, that is a repeat of what happened between the Qing and the Ming. And the difference back then was that the Qing got really mad, and they wanted, their, you know, they wanted to consolidate their authority, right? They don't want some the losers just to be sitting there forever, right? Not under their sway. It really doesn't make you feel all that good about yourself. But, and so they built up a navy. And they eventually conquered it, right? A few decades later, in the 16, after the 1650s, I think it was actually around the 1680s. And anyway, the point being that China could do that now because the US Navy exists. That, that's why we have Taiwan. So people who don't quite understand, the only reason Taiwan exists is because of the United States. 
There's zero other reasons, right? And even the fact that Taiwan is developed the way it is, Taiwan is another place that on its own would not develop the way it has, right? This is a, it's a, a massively, it's covered in mudflats all along the Western coast as a massive, very thick, knotted, like knotty, uh, rugged island mountain chain on sort of along the, the Eastern half, uh, Eastern part of it, the central portion, central and Eastern portion of it. It's not an ideal place. And the, the recent history of Taiwan last you know, 150 years is basically it's colonization by Japan. So Taiwan was actually the first place that Japan colonized as it began its grand expansion, because Taiwan is almost an extension of uh, the Japanese islands and the, what's called the, the Ryukyu Islands south of there, which includes uh, Okinawa. And then you go down, you basically hit Taiwan. So it was sort of a natural extension when Japan was extending its sort of maritime military presence. Uh, Taiwan was the first place. And Taiwan was also, because of that, the first place in China to industrialize. It got all the early Japan during the late Meiji Restoration, all of that Meiji Revolution in the 19th, late 19th century, it industrialized before any other East Asian country and defeated, ended up getting Taiwan and then it defeated Russia, slaughtered Russia in a war. And right, that led to the whole great, impressive, it's kind of like the Voldemort thing, right? Where it's like, he's very great, but you know, you don't like it or whatever, the sort of Japanese imperial expansion. And Taiwan's place in all this was it was, it was a cog in that machine. And so it does have, it did have the sort of a bit of the industrial backbone, all of the, a lot of ports, a lot of railroads, a lot of things were developed as Japan was using as a major staging ground for all of its activities, right? In, in, in East Asia. So that's part of it. And then after 1949, the U S supported it and the U S particularly wanted it as a, didn't mind having a big, large, basically unsinkable aircraft carrier right off the coast of China. And yeah, and so being basically integrating into the U.S. global trading and financial system was incredibly important for Taiwan. Taiwan was basically a dictatorship, actually, until the set, late 70s. And then it kind of modernized. It's only been a democracy, not as long as people think. And yeah, and it got it just it moved up the value chain the same way that places like Hong Kong did. And I'll just add this very quickly for people. Everyone always needs to realize that the same way that China, there's all these different pieces of China and they're inside the, the main mainland uh, communist China. Since the 1980s, the early 1980s, Taiwan and Hong Kong and China, they've all been sort of a part of a greater China triangle where uh, Hong Kong was providing a lot of financial utility to China. It was a borderland place where you could change money, exchange money, move capital, get things, be right off the coast of China, but not there, connected to the industrial manufacturers in those regions. It's very useful. That's why it became a massive Singapore-like city, right? It's in a key node uh, right outside that main uh, basin in southern China. And Taiwan did a very similar thing for a lot of manufacturing activity and a lot of tech uh, activity in sort of being relatively close to southern China and also to the, the Shanghai region. And it developed, right? And Taiwan right now is really in the news because it has the most advanced semiconductor technology base in the entire world. It has the most advanced semiconductor company in the world. They're they're massive. They're essential to the global supply chain. And so it's gotten to the point where actually Taiwan is so essential to the world that it is not something that China can really just take out, right? It can just eat, right? If you actually try and invade Taiwan, at this point, everyone was always, I mean, just to give more of the political background, right? When the US and China uh, kissed and made up in the 1970s, part of what this meant was acknowledging that China is China and starting to not be as supportive of Taiwan. But really, it just moved the de facto, the, the, the actual legal alliance, military alliance between the US and China, it became a de facto one, right? So the US 
it would be kind of like if we uh, kissed and made up with North Korea and said, all right, North Korea, we're good, but now we are going to abandon South Korea to you, right? You could just eat them. So we weren't willing to do that, but we wanted to kiss and make up. So kind of had this de facto thing going on. And that involved, right, China has been pushing all around the world to have everyone not acknowledge Taiwan, not do this, acknowledge China kind of and make it like a fait accompli that as China develops, it's so big, it's so massive, Taiwan will just naturally join into the fold, right? That's what it wanted to happen. It wanted to have everyone pushed away and it wanted this to just, just seem like something that was inevitable. Unfortunately, that's not going to happen anymore. The Hong Kong situation killed that. There's no support for it in Taiwan. Taiwan is now integral to the global uh, semiconductor supply chain, the whole global computer electronics industry. And it's getting basically support from official support from Japan at this point, which is basically supporting its old colonial uh, appendage. And obviously the United States and you know increasingly places like uh, Australia and other countries, Ch- uh, Taiwan's been secretly building a submarine program and it's been getting support from countries all around the world and corporations all around the world, even though China historically has been very, very, very against this and has done a lot, put a lot of political pressure on companies and countries to not involve themselves with this. This is still, still ongoing. So it's a big change. And it's tough. And this is why when we were talking about military potential for conflict, military threats, and just the, the sense that the Russia and China in particular might just start using this military in ways they haven't in a while, Taiwan is a place to look for. Because like I said, the old Qing dynasty knew it needed to take uh, Taiwan to feel like it was actually the real uh, overlord of China, right? The same way I said, there's all these different pieces of China. Well, if Taiwan's doing so well on its own, why couldn't we try, right? I mean, this is a this is the sort of domino effect that the Communist Party doesn't like. And as things get worse in, in China, the potential for conflict over Taiwan increases. And also, for people who don't know, the entire Chinese military is geared towards uh, taking Taiwan. Not that it can in the way it thinks, but that is the near-term major goal because it's like, if you can't do that, you might as well give up on everything else. But also, you probably can't do that to probably have to give up on that and everything else, but that's probably another, another topic. <laughs> no, it's it's good. Um, and it makes me think, you know, Taiwan is very industrial. Everyone always kind of thinks when you think China, like, oh, it must be this mega industrial complex that just is always cranking everything out that everyone uses everywhere. Is that true as we think about it? Like, are they just built as a manufacturing like hub? Yes and no. So they are definitely a manufacturing hub. They produce probably a third of all manufactured goods on the planet. So that's true. But it's slightly different than people think. A lot of what goes on in China is assembly work, right? So it's taking pieces that are basically built all over the world, and they're all shipped for final assembly to China. There's that. And then there's also mass manufacturing, a lot of low-end sectors, right? So the old historic ones would be like little plastic toys and all that kind of stuff. And obviously China's moved up from that. But what Taiwan is, is that it's at the very top of the value chain. So in, in various sectors, you can sort of break down what, where are the, the, where's the real money made in the sector, right? So let's say in app, you know, the iPhone, for example, it's always a good one. There's all the different components of it and there's the software. And if you kind of break down who makes what piece, you can see how much money they get, right? For each of the things. And in general, the, the very high value added uh, components, and also there's also just high value added sectors in general. And Taiwan's really at the top of those, kind of like Japan, Germany, South Korea, and the United States. These are very, very hard and competitive things to break into, right? China's big strategy to become the manufacturing hub 
for almost everything. And like a lot of the sort of lower medium tier goods is that it could just get massive scale, use its very cheap workforce, use mass government subsidies, use the open permissive global uh, trade environment and also some currency stuff to basically force the issue, right? It can get, you know, dump its products, kind of bleed, just bleed dry everybody else who couldn't compete with its bottom, you know, bottom barrel prices, and then eventually kind of win the market, right? That, that's a strategy that doesn't work though at the high end, right? That doesn't work when people want iPhones. <laughs> you can't, there's not really anything you can do, right? You, it's a very different situation. And so this is the general challenge, the Chinese economic model and particularly the technological sector is facing right now, where it's now suddenly trying to compete with all of the most advanced countries, all of the most advanced industries, all at the same time, at a point in the world where, where countries are becoming more protectionist and more nationalist and where the economic effects of all prior Chinese sort of vaguely predatory cor uh, corporate and economic behavior has become abundantly clear, right? So it probably wasn't the best thing in the world to socially, for the social fabric of a country like the United States, to decimate the uh, the whole whole uh, you know industrial sectors to let it kind of go to China. It's very clear problems with what, what's happened with that. But also, unfortunately, that's happened. And that's that has happened. But now it's kind of sad because a lot of people were sort of abandoned, but the country is starting to wake up right? once more you know, white collar jobs or whatever are threatened. It's kind of an unfortunate thing. It says a bit about what we value, but nonetheless, that's kind of what's happening. So China's really in a bind in that sense. And that's where Taiwan is kind of a different story, right? Like just as an example, I've done a few videos on semiconductors because it's the key element of the digital world, the modern digital world we have. And if you don't have them, guess what? You're not a part of this world anymore. You're going back to a sort of an analog industrial life, if, if that, right? Or just a weird, you know, barren agricultural one at best, or just horrible poverty. But the the, the thing with semiconductors is that they're ex it's an extremely, extremely capital intensive industry, right? So just the three major players, it's like Samsung, TSMC, and Intel. So the Taiwanese, a Taiwanese company, a South Korean company, and the US company, they're spending like over a hundred, hundreds of billions of dollars in the next years just to keep up with each other and to keep up with demand. So if you don't have a semiconductor industry that's at that level, and that can even produce chips at, that are at that quality and at that sort of uh, precision and the, the scale and the, the, the nanoscale of manufacturing, you're in a lot of trouble because you need the scale, to, you need to produce, right? You can't just say, oh, let's make a little test facility and make five little wafers or whatever. It's like, no, you need to, like, to even justify a, a 10, a 15, a $20 plant. You need to have the entire thing ordered out. And so just to scale up, to, to bump into the semiconductor uh, sort of industry at all, it's just insanely difficult. It's, it's insanely difficult now, even for Intel to keep up because it kind of dropped the ball for a bit. It's going to have to spend insane amounts of money just to keep that up. So China has spent tens of billions of dollars on trying to get all the semiconductor stuff to, to scale up because China makes a, a pittance of the semiconductors that it needs, right? Massive country and just you, you don't have all the resources. And it's, it's a real challenge. And it also does lead to another major point that people aren't quite aware of about China. And it relates to manufacturing. We all think of China as the manufacturing center, right? And it is. In a lot of ways, it was the primary manufacturing production center of the sort of globalized world of like eight of 1980 to like probably probably around 2030-ish, right? Fit that 50-year stretch, it became the production node for the world. And while the United States was the main consumption node, that was sort of the way, the two pillars of how the system sort of functioned for a while. But that's all really changed because as China's developed, it has actually created 
so many systems and uh, functions and corporations and machines and all these things, it actually needs to import insane amounts to keep it all up, right? To try and do everything yourself in China, when you have this massive scale, it's impossible. So what's happened is that China is now, leave COVID aside for a sec, obviously there's a bit of a shift, but China in general has a current account deficit like the United States, right? The imports, exports, yeah, like in general, if sort of COVID was, leave COVID out for a second, it's basically trending in the red because it now needs to import so many things to keep everything running. And it just doesn't have all of that. So it's a, it's a huge challenge. And the one that is probably most disturbing to the Communist Party is semiconductors. Because if you don't have that, <laughs> you're done, <laughs> right? It's, it's like, I mean, I, there's a lot of ones that are very disturbing. Energy, oil, natural gas. If you don't have that, all the lights shut off. Food, you don't have that. You don't have fertilizer, stuff like that. People starve, you get famine. And there's a couple other ones, obviously, water, whatever. But semiconductors recently are very important for if you want to keep, compete at the, at the frontier, the technological frontier, you really need these semiconductors. And right now we're actually seeing the United States is basically threatening to do a semiconductor ban on Russia, right? This is where I was saying the United States is being uh, much more aggressive than it has been in a very long time. And this is really the, the absolute leading edge of that, right? Not only is it uh, advocating like the largest sanctions ever, right? Just utterly brutal and crushing. And I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying that's what's happening. And it's also advocating for the first time for a major technological decapitation with a semiconductor ban. And that's a big change. And that's precisely what the Communist Party has always feared. And that's why it's been focused on self-sufficient technological self-sufficiency for many years now. And it will 100% be using this in propaganda to sort of push that view. But kind of like Russia, you know, that doesn't help you, right? If you don't have the stuff you need and it uses US technology, and just so people who, who don't know, the United States has a very intrusive uh, sanctions uh, infrastructure. And it really developed primarily actually under Obama where you're trying to move away from wars, overt wars, and you're like, all right, well, we still want to slap people down. So we're going to use a lot more economic and financial, and then particularly now all these export controls. So a lot of Chinese companies are being put on export controls because they're involved in genocide, basically in Xinjiang, among other things. And the obviously that the US doesn't like that, and it's putting them on these, these controls to basically limit their access to the global system as a whole, right? If you're, you know, you can't do, so Iran's a great example of a country that's just been during the Trump administration, it was just like excommunicated from the rest of the world. It couldn't use dollars. It couldn't use the global financial system, really, any of the underlying infrastructure. Nobody wanted to deal with it because they didn't want to get hit with their own sanctions. Very dark time uh, for, for Iran. And then you get, you're getting a similar thing with China. We're trying to seize all this kind of stuff. And it knows how bad things can get. And it doesn't want to be dependent on the United States to the extent that's possible. And now we're seeing on the technological side, not just the financial and the economic, which was more typical. We're seeing real major sort of goods and technological uh, aggression. And so it's a real, real change and, a, and a, something that's really everyone should be thinking about because it's a, a sign of where things are going. Yeah. And just real quick, because I know there's, a, we've mentioned it a couple of times. I want to talk about, you know, the Uyghur situation. Um, but right before that, I just wanted to, to ask if, you know, with all of the supply shortages that everyone's seeing everywhere, regardless of why we have supply shortages, is there a chance we start taking some level of production and manufacturing back into the U.S. and like leaving China in kind of a high and dry situation where it's like, oh, we don't need you to make these anymore. And then it's just like a dead zone. Yeah. So what's happened really started towards the end of the Obama administration, accelerated during the Trump administration and got even more catalyzed by Biden is it is we're moving towards uh, economic nationalism. 
And Europe is moving towards economic regionalism, basically back to Europe because they they don't have a nation. <laughs> they have a can, you know, group of nations under the EU. And that's definitely what we're seeing. And the United States actually needs to expand its industrial plant, that whole system that sent to China because it was cheapest. And the, the new supply chains, new information technology starting in the you know, 70s, late 80s, you know, going through the, the second half of the 20th century enabled all of this. It enabled giant supply chains, it enabled just-in-time manufacturing, it enabled you to build anything where it was cheapest to build and you know, cheapest to, uh, you know, they had the least tax, all that kind of stuff. You could just do that, seep it everywhere all around the world, and then build the final thing where it was cheapest to assemble in China. And you kind of ship it around the world for uh, pennies, right? The, the cost of shipping just went so low. It enabled all this stuff. Now, all that is really changing. We're seeing shipping rates from uh, you know the Western Pacific to the United States. We haven't seen it in a long time. They've like doubled. I mean, 12X, it's gone crazy, really. The way things have happened, you have container shortages. You have, everybody knows. Everybody knows. Everybody knows all this stuff that's going on in the global uh, logistics area, at least has, has a sense of it. And it is very true that the, the only way that this, the prior sort of just-in-time, very efficient style of global manufacturing we had, it only really worked when you didn't need redundancies, when you didn't need resilience, when you didn't have uh, major events that impacted it. And now we've had one, and it's, it's leading to protectionism all across the world, and not just in the United States. But you know, obviously, it started in 2020. People remember, like, why can't we make our own masks? Why can't we make our own ventilators? And there was a strong push that we should be able, we should have more of this medical self-sufficiency. And the United States has always had a defense, a focus on being self-sufficient in creation of defense and weapons, uh, defense systems and weapon systems. There's a whole, every year you get a report on the defense industrial base, how many, how many companies can make this product and that product and this plane and that plane. And unfortunately that it's also been declining in that area as well, which has prompted some of these, these problems, a lot of things in the defense chain that rely on China, which is kind of hilarious in a lot of ways, but that's, that was only the start, right? And we're moving towards a world where things are becoming more economically nationalist. And the United States is at the forefront of it. And it doesn't matter, uh, de Democrat or Republican here. It started, on, got all, you know, the, the seed of it began with the late Obama administration. It got really uh, vocal and in your face in the Trump administration, but then it's been quietly accelerated even more under Obama. I'm mean, sorry, under Biden. Biden is, I mean, he has Buy American. He has all these, these policies that are way stronger than Trump's. He hasn't got rid of any tariffs on China, right? We had this whole bait, oh, tariffs are bad, protect the world. Then, the, you know, that was what the, the, the left was saying. And it turns out that it wasn't really about that. It was really about like, we just didn't want Trump to do it. And we're going like, to kind of do it ourselves. That we're going to keep it up because it's the, in a lot of ways, Trump was a, he sort of had the instinct for what a, what a, what a sort of knife fight in, in, a, in a geopolitical world might look like. And the, particularly on the left in the United States, there was a, a strong sense that that was so ignominious and beneath us. And we have higher standards, higher morals. And that's probably true. But nonetheless, that's kind of, that instinct did point to where the world is moving into that much more of a, like, like we've been talking about, more of a brutal, uh, non-collaborative, non-cooperative, self-interested sort of environment where there's a lot of shortages, where there's material shortages. Like we've lived in a world of abundance where everyone could have more of everything. And like you said, you know, there's countries all around the world that you know need government help and they need international help. And it's even worse than that. About 75% of countries need some sort of uh, international support to provide basic services to their people. And it's the United States and the US system that has made all of this possible. And now it's a real change. And it is true that if this starts to fade, like the 
potential for many countries to function as they are, it just dis- declines. It disappears entirely. And there's a good reason if you know, you're more on the, uh, the American left to think, you know, we don't want this all to crumble. This is terrible. This is horrible. We're going to be destroying the, our, our ideals and everything we've worked for for decades, all that kind of stuff. And that's also true. But also the, the key thing here and the reason it goes through Obama and Trump and Biden is because the U.S. doesn't have the power to keep it together anymore. This is the key, the key thing. And what the U.S. is going to be focusing on, particularly this decade, is, yeah, trying to keep things together a bit. But it's also going to be recentering and rebuilding that what you like you had mentioned, this industrial base that was you know, kind of hollowed out in a lot of ways, and it's going to be necessary. There's going to, there's a strong consensus now, bipartisan consensus, that we need more production in the United States for the same self-sufficiency reasons that China is worried about. The difference between China and the U.S. is that the U.S. can actually do a lot of this. China can't. And I know people often think, oh, God, but how can that be true? And we're always hearing about the U.S. is dependent on everyone for everything. And that that's true in some sense, but it's a different thing, right? The if the United States is dependent on Australia for something, that doesn't really matter, right? The, the real question is always when you're dependent on basically China for something. That's the real question. Uh, China's a bit different. It has so many enemies, like we've talked about. It doesn't have very friends. Being dependent on anyone is kind of a problem for China. Its attempts to bribe various countries have you know, you know, fallen flat, right? Caused later problems, caused political problems, destroyed relations, all this kind of stuff. It's a big challenge. And the United States is also very self-sufficient in sort of the primary articles, the primary civilizational inputs, right? Energy, food, water, all the kind, these kind of basics, which we think of them as, oh, that's just, we'll just, you know, we'll be just a colony of China. It'll produce the really advanced stuff and we'll just send it soybeans, right? And that's not actually true because the independence comes and the initial economic foundation comes from these primary inputs and you need them to make anything function. So for example, in China, there's been electricity, basically there's energy problems in China. Everyone saw a couple of months ago in October, there was basically blackouts in 75% of Chinese provinces. And there's, there's many challenges, but what's part of what's going on is that the electricity system in China and the electricity rates, they're all going up. And that's a, tra- a challenge because China's become the energy, I mean, the industrial producer of the world in part on cheap energy. Energy is, you know, inputs are basically the, the, the fundamental constraint on most industrial production in developing countries. And the way China circumvented that was by using lots and lots of cheap domestic coal, right? That was the energy source that made China's advancement, development, industrialization all possible. And now that the world wants to shift towards it, now that the overt and obvious climate disaster in China and economic and sorry, environmental disaster in China is clear for everyone to see, including the, commun- including the people and the Communist Party, because for a long time, the Communist Party made like climate change was a basically a propaganda move by the West to keep China down, right? Then it got so bad within the country and the people started, and they you know, changed this tune. But th- that was how it seemed. Now that it's gone so bad, China is, is really stuck in a bind, right? It needs this cheap energy. If, it, if, you, if the energy gets too expensive, you can't maintain this giant manufacturing complex that you have. It's not possible. Nothing pencils out. Everything goes into the red. It's so it's a very, very major thing that we all need to keep. We need to think about. And unfortunately, we t- tend to think about things in terms of like consumers, like how, how much is your electricity bill, right? Versus if you're an industrial nation, a lot of it matters more about the, the production side of things. And that's sort of often lost. But all this is, is a major, major shift, right? The, what you pointed out, this move towards more production in the United States and towards economic nationalism, I think people should be aware that it is, it's a deeper phenomenon that we, than we realize. And it's also definitely here to stay. That's interesting. And I'll finally get on to what I'm sure some people are, 
are here and wondering about because we've mentioned it several times what is the Uyghur Muslim situation in China currently? What what are we seeing when people, because some people will just say like, oh, and they, uh, I think there was a, a coach, something from a, a team recently in the U.S. that just said like, oh, that's not on my radar. It's not an issue I'm concerned with. And that's like all you heard about it. So what are they really talking about? So the, basically there's a, population is a Muslim population in the region of Xinjiang. They're known as the Uyghurs, and they've been there for a very long time. They, they became the dominant uh, ethnic group there in the, during the Qing dynasty. Uh, actually, I mean, this is a bit of an unknown thing, and I'm not sure. Well, I'll just say uh, people should be aware of this. But basically, in the, in the 1700s, there was uh, when China, the Qing dynasty was expanding into the, this region in the first place, there was another genocide that happened. It was called the Dzungar genocide. It happened before the Geneva Conventions, back when you could sort of get away with this thing in the middle of Central Asia and no one would know. But it was the Qing, the, the Chinese state at the time wanted to wipe the slate clean of the ethnic groups in the region. And it actually collaborated with the Uyghurs to get rid of the Dzungars because they were they were uh, basically tribal enemies, you could basically say. And that uh, opened the stage up for the Qing development. Although the Qing dynasty didn't do much in Xinjiang. It was much, much, mostly a wash from an economic development perspective. But what's happened since 1949 is that the Communist Party has been very concerned with Xinjiang as a part of that security perimeter we were talking about. It's a key region. It's next to Muslim regions. It was next to also the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union had a plan to basically take over Xinjiang in the 1930s and 40s. So it was not idle. But yeah, so it's been, there's a lot of things. And Xinjiang was originally developed by paramilitary organizations, right? So there's actually a primary, almost a primary military component in Xinjiang because it is so non-viable from this sort of primary economic development perspective, right? The stuff we were talking about, water, is, uh, any rain, any sunlight, uh, kind of basic stuff. It's not the best, but you could, you could develop it initially through major state paramilitary force, basically. And then what happened as the, you know, since the 1970s, late 1970s, and China's entering the, the global world system, it's been trying to develop all those inland regions uh, that aren't part of those coasts that we talked about that are very more easy to develop and naturally more dynamic economically. It's been need to develop all these things. And the Xinjiang has always been key to this because it's both the economic development side of things and that security element, right? It has a key position. And then as, right, so it's become a key part of, of this plan. And what the Chinese Communist Party has been doing basically since mid-2000s is it's also been trying to deal with what it sees as a potential security threat with the, the Muslim population there. So Xinjiang was, a, like I said, it was sort of up for grabs in the middle of the 20th century. And it was, you know, there were Muslim, the Soviet Union was support, supporting some groups that were calling it East Turkmenistan and the ethnic and religious identity in Xinjiang is separate and distinct from the Han Chinese core farther east. So you basically need to assert strong political and military control over this region. And starting in 2005, the whole terrorist uh, threat, China began to extend extreme uh, control over this region. And it progressively got to the point where it's basically implementing concentration camps and insane surveillance technologies and also right cultural and physical genocide in many ways. Right, This is the mass subjugation of a, of a population because it's worried 
that it'll be a security threat. And it's really heinous, the level of what's going on, what's gone on there. And I don't get into it too much, but people can read the articles about this, right? There's mass surveillance. They track everything you do. They have uh, biometrics on everything, your eyes, your, your fingertips, your gait, your facial expressions, all of this is using mad. I mean, this is also the ground zero for people who aren't aware. This is the ground zero for what machine learning and artificial intelligence combine with a police state and mass surveillance, what it leads to. So it's the training ground and the sort of basically the, yeah, the training center for where all of the later Chinese uh, security population control, mass surveillance technologies would be implemented, right? They, they were tested there, then, you know, basically sent to the rest of China, particularly as COVID has sort of accelerated. But that's basically what's going on in uh, Xinjiang. There's a you know Muslim population there that is, you know, under the very brutal uh, thumb uh, of the Communist Party. And it really, in the last, let's say three years, it's really entered into Western consciousness and prominence more, more significantly, right? It's been there a long time. <laughs> this has been a problem for a long time, but it's gotten bigger. And it kind of, there was first, there was the Hong Kong issue that got people riled up and then Xinjiang appeared. And now it's really accelerated where the US recently passed a bill to ban. And so what a lot of what's going on there is also forced labor. So that paramilitary developments uh, model that, that prevailed in Xinjiang, what they also ended up doing is using, you know, they developed industries, they developed, developed agricultural industries and certain uh, primary production industries in Xinjiang. And they would use the Uyghurs as forced labor for this, basically camp labor, right? So the echoes towards the Holocaust, things like that, they're, they're not, um, right, they're kind of obvious, right? The camps, <laughs> forced labor, all that kind of stuff. And that's, that's unfortunately the way things are, are happening. And what's happened with this new bill is that there's now a presumption. Basically, the United States has said every company needs to prove they're not using for, uh, forced labor, forced Uyghur labor in Xinjiang and anywhere in their supply chain. The presumption is that you, if, you're, if anything comes from Xinjiang, it's using forced labor. And so this is a, another major change. This is, a, again, another a big you know, U.S. sort of thrust against China in a sort of a geopolitical sense. And it's a, it's a bad thing. And it's, it's become a real challenge. So you mentioned the, uh, I think it was the Golden State Warriors, probably Golden State Warriors part owner. I think it was, that was what I had heard. And yeah, it's uh, companies and individuals are really struggling to figure out how to deal with the changing political landscape around China. So for companies, for example, the NBA companies, this is a problem for Hong Kong, where there was the, the GM of the Houston Rockets had said something about Hong Kong, and then suddenly they were punished and they were just shut out of the, you know, shut off all Chinese you know, TVs and internet sources just gone. The Rockets no longer existed. Boom, boom. The, 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 you know, the dark internet curtain falls, right? And you suddenly disappear. And a lot of Western companies are and industries, they have no idea how to deal with this stuff because there's so many points of conflict and contention and contest between the US and China. And it's now becoming impossible to play both sides because that's what the everyone did, right? It wasn't just China was has been China for a very long time. And but people were able to just ignore what made it terrible while profiting from what really helped their business, whatever. And there was a mutual benefit element to this thing. And it wasn't just suddenly an evil empire one day. Right. There was a there was a mutual thing and people were willing to look the other way while the things were going good overall. Now that's really changed and companies are getting caught in a vice. They're getting caught. They don't, they're trying to appease China and, and trying to keep maintain access to the large Chinese uh, consumer market, relatively large consumer market that's there now. 
and they need to do so without angering people in the United States. So can you just say, oh, we're going to acquiesce to China, then people in the United States are like, why are you supporting a genocide, right? If you, in China, say, oh, we're not going to support the Uyghur genocide, then, then China's going to be like, well, you don't get access to any of the Chinese population's you know, labor, right, or, or consumer potential, right? So it's it's a vice is what this is. And someone like the the G, the uh, part owner of the, the Gold State Warriors, they're, they're trying to balance between this, right? This is why you get these statements where it's like, or Obama, or, or what's his name? Uh, LeBron James has also been uh, strongly criticized for never saying anything about China. Why are you so big on social issues in the United States? And you say nothing about genocide, right? This is where we've gotten where it's become, it's a real challenge for people. And it's also uh, a sign that we're much more limited and blinkered when we're talking and thinking about social issues than we have we realized. So people who are very socially conscious about the problems and the inequalities and the discrimination in the United States won't say much or anything at all about something like China. And, and there's just a strong sense where we just, we're just self-centered really, right? Like I'm talking, like I, I gave you the history of Xinjiang. It's pretty brutal. You haven't heard something like that in a long time, like built by paramilitary organizations using forced labor to, you know, all this kind of stuff. It was a site for you, like uranium extraction, all that kind of stuff. It's like, this is a brutal thing, brutal thing in all sense. Historical genocide, current genocide, all terrible. But we don't know how to process this sort of stuff. We don't actually have a moral framework for how to answer these questions, right? Because like I said, well, if Xinjiang, and this is what you know, the Golden State Warriors owner would say, he's like, well, what are they going to do by themselves? Right? Yeah, you're part of China. That sucks. But what other options do you have? And this is kind of what I was getting to earlier, where there's this is just a moral dilemma where there's no good answer, where let's say you support the Uyghurs, which is, you know, you should in some sense support the Uyghurs, but what can you do besides this enthusiasm, right? Like what, what, what can you actually do? The United States government can make all these gestures to, to punish China and all that, but that happens to be part of the U.S.'s kind of strategic competition with China. But what do you actually do for the Uyghurs? Like when, if China is gone, I mean, yes, to yourself, but it, it's not, there's no prosperity there. There's no anything. So this is just this challenge. This is just this murk that we're entering. This is another element of this world that we're entering where the neat and easy uh, commonplace answers to what we should do and what's good and what's bad, they're not there anymore. They're not going to be easy to just find. You're, you're not going to be able to just have some, oh, well, we'll just support you know the people of Sudan and this and that. It's just, it's, it's being revealed to be a bit of a superficial farce. And I'm definitely not saying that what's, you shouldn't, try and, and do something about Xinjiang, but it's kind of like everything else with China. It's like, well, what do you do about Hong Kong? Can't do anything about it. I mean, again, you can, you know, China, I guess this is a good time to probably just mention that China has a lot of problems coming down the pipeline. So when I talked in the beginning about China clenching its fist, right. And then I'm talking about all the things it's doing, like, you know, forced labor, like the stuff it's doing in, in, in Hong Kong, the plan to, you know, the military effort to build up the capacity to invade and, and conquer Taiwan, it's like, God, there's a lot, there's a lot on its plate. And that's just, that doesn't even include the housing market in China, the problems in the financial system, problems in the agricultural sector, problems in the energy sector, it goes on and on. So this is kind of where, I don't know, it's a bit where the rubber hits the road where, you know, China's got a lot of problems and they're basically, it's, it's that scale question again. It's like, China doesn't know how to deal with the problems. We don't know how to deal with the problems. And as individuals, it's very hard to even navigate a proper position on any of these problems. So I hope that was kind of helpful for people to get just a broader sense of, of both Xinjiang and also why it's such a complicated issue and where you're not going to find people who have these very neat and tidy positions on things unless you're taking an explicit moral 
position, like sort of like to keep up with the basketball meta, uh, sort of theme here, uh, Enes Cantor is a uh, Turkish basketball player who's been very outspoken about the hypocrisy around Xinjiang. And he's correct, right? All these players, are they're, they're shooting for in- endorsements and sponsorships and all sorts of deals to make money in China from a population that loves basketball, right? So, so many of them are just unwilling out of greed or fear to say anything. And Enes Cantor sort of had oppression, him and his family experienced oppression in, in Turkey under uh, the authoritarian sort of leadership there. And he was, he was very vocally and morally upset and agitated by what's going on in, in Xinjiang. And so he's been sort of pushing people to, to say more, but we're seeing how limited that effect is, right? Right now, but we'll see. I mean, things are, the tide is definitely turning for everything to be more difficult for China, right? Everything it's doing is going to be under more and more scrutiny, more and more opprobrium and scorn and all that is definitely true. So hope that was helpful. No, it's definitely helpful. Um, and you're right. It's hard to, you know, at some point people are, are just not talking about it because there is a, a level of greed involved where they're like, well, if I, if I talk about this, like I'm going to lose a lot of money and it's a bad balance. I won't like shy away from that. Like it's definitely bad to be like, Oh, my money, as opposed to, uh, you know, some human rights violations, but it's also hard to say like, I want all bad things to end and then not have like, a good solution to that because I can say I want all bad things to end and I do, but without like some extraordinary involvement from, I mean, probably the entire globe, like you're just not going to get that kind of solution. Um, and it's definitely not going to be clean. You know, if, if yeah. China's in a place where it's like trying to hold on to every last, you know, ounce it has, you know, at some point you're going to be desperate enough to use whatever measures you have. And that's like, you know, pushing them with more, you know, more sanctions or more whatever, like may make that problem worse before it gets any better. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I think that's a really great line. Just just wanting all bad things to end. I mean, that's the best way I've heard it put. It's it's not enough. Right. And just the impulse. You're like, all right, I want all bad things to end. And you go and you point out the bad thing right now you want to end. God, just getting that one bad thing to end. We'll take all your effort and time. And the, the honest truth is that we lose interest. You look at the history of the last 30 years of sort of global aid. Oh, you know, there's a, you know, there's a problem in Africa and people just have lost interest in this country. And then the next country, it's just, it's a fad. It's a weird, there's a social element to it. And the, the, the brutal truth kind of returns us to geography and to the baseline potential for economic, social, political development in different countries. And especially the development that tends towards something we prefer in the political and social sphere where it's more liberal and, and uh, sort of free, basically. That's all very rare, right? There's very few countries since 1945, since the end of the Cold War, the last 75 years that have really developed at all. It's a tiny number of countries and it's, guess who it is? It's mostly countries that were already pretty good off, well off in the first place, right? Right after 1945, you get, you know, France, a bunch of European countries redeveloped, Germany redeveloped, Japan redeveloped. The additions are very small, right? You got like Chile, you got uh, Taiwan, you have South Korea, you have a couple of places, but it's so minimal overall. And it's something we're not really prepared to reckon with, right? It's just, I don't know, in some sense, we might not know what to do if our moral urge to make all bad things end is proven impossible for the moment. Where do we put our energy? 
I think there's a, a, some deep question in that that we haven't really addressed because we put a lot of energy into politics, right? We put a lot, a lot of energy. And both on the national level where we, everybody, every two or two to four years, you're brutally, brutally upset and miserable. Yet, you know, a couple of years later, you're back on the, the, the you know, what's the, the thing at the circus that just goes in a circle where the horses go up and down? Oh, on a carousel. A carousel. Yeah, you're just, yeah. It's a carousel. Yeah. It's just back on the carousel. There's all the lights and noises and you get off. You're like, what was that? And, oh, this time it was fun. Oh, what was that? It was terrible. Why was I on there? Uh, there's something like that. There's that carousel is, is there and it's bad at the national level, but on the international level, it's just, it's even worse, right? We, it's just farther away from us. We, we pretend like we have this deep spiritual, emotional connection to all these things. We don't pretend we try in a sense. I think we're actually honestly trying, but it's so, it's so difficult to sustain it. When all your only contact is through images, through emails, what does it really mean to anyone? Like, I think that's the really the sad thing. And it's something that the Communist Party banks on that at some point people will forget about Xinjiang. At some point people will forget about this or that. It's something that the authoritarian states have relied on pretty well for a long time. Like people, I mean, Russia invaded Georgia in 2008, right? Well, nobody remembers that, right? It's like it already had, it took Crimea. It's like people remember that, but. It just goes on. And unfortunately, it's kind of what we got to at the beginning. The, the world, the world of, of conflict, not just commerce, but commerce and conflict, you know, it's back, right? And the, the things that countries are doing, most countries, 95% of countries are not trending towards being like the United States. They're not, they're not about to become oh, Iowa. You know what I mean? They're, they're not on that path. And we don't know how to get them on that path. And our path of the last 20 years was to like, I mean, the places we tried, like Iraq and Afghanistan, clearly failed. Uh, that's what, if that's what our heavy involvement meant, that's not the way to do it. But we've also tried on an economic and diplomatic way for, for a long time. And like I mentioned, there's very few countries, less than like 17 countries have really developed since 1945. So you're just in a bind. And you know what, what I recommend people think about is, well, what are a lot of the answers we need, they're not just social enthusiasm. You need enabling technologies to make it work. And it's not the question of like, oh, give every poor child a laptop and that'll fix everything. Uh, it's not trying to have a technology solve some social problem, but you need to, we need to get a better handle on what technologies could make life, civilization basically more viable in more places. Uh, we haven't handled that as well. And, and the truth is we're running out of capital and money and time to kind of do it, right? We have a capital crunch coming in a lot of the developed world. There's not going to be as much money flying around to every like new delivery app that you see, uh, you know, every every couple of months popping up. That kind of era is ended. We, the era of like just like mass capital flying around the world, you know, that's coming to an end. So it's going to be a, a real budget question about what we actually spend our time and our money and our resources on. And it's just another area where we're not kind of the theme of this discussion has been we're not quite prepared for the scale of the changes that are really coming. And if I had to make a bet, I'd say, we'll keep doing, you know, foreign policy stuff. The United States likes it because it makes presidents feel important and like they're doing something and they can actually get things done. So once you, once you get your one bill done in your first two years, and then you have to give up and you lose the house and the president is just stuck basically doing foreign policy to feel like valuable <laughs> for six years, four, you know, two to two to two to six years, you end up with the United States involving itself in everything. But on a deeper level, the United States is kind of what you mentioned, focusing more on bringing things back home. There's a lot of problems with 
you know, both political spectrums in the United States kind of angrily going at each other. And there's not much bandwidth for solving a lot of these global problems. And I don't think there's going to be as much budgetary investment in things either. Uh, a lot of the world was really mad. The United States was basically hoarding vaccines to give to our population, not spreading them all around the world. And yeah, that's a, it's a, I mean, there's more complications to it. It's kind of hard to, these vaccines require cold storage. You can't exactly bring them to Zambia without them all going bad. There's not an infrastructure for it. But in general, COVID in itself was a big, was a very good indication of where the world is going, right? Instead of a global kumbaya, let's join together and, you know, fight this as one and come together. It's like, no, let's, uh, let's get in, in each other's face and, you know, lock down and do this. And basically the opposite of the world of global cooperation, we would need to solve things like climate change, you know, where poverty exists, all these kind of major problems. We clearly don't have the resources or the organizational infrastructure or the leadership to do it. Well, and that plays back into what we talked about, where it's like if you just you know cut the strings off a marionette, like it falls to the ground. The same way, like if you don't have the support to give to whichever area. Yeah, they're going to be really mad about like, oh, hey, we can't deliver vaccines to every country in in Africa. And people are like, well, that's awful. And it's like, yeah, but if we didn't exist to do that, like they still wouldn't have them and they still don't have the ability to produce them. So it's like, what what level of involvement do we have to have in everyone's business in order to take care of, you know, our our social credit worth of uh, issues? Yeah, it really gives you a sense of the, the moral scope uh, of the United States, right? Or the the expectations that are associated with it. Countries around the world expect the United States, expect or hope the United States will help solve all these problems. And unfortunately, the personality and the disposition of the United States these days is declining in, that, in its interest in doing that. And if you look at U.S. history, you tend to see patterns of isolation and then heavy involvement, right? You probably remember in school, that's what they loved, an isolationist, and then we're back. And, isol- and you know, so that's kind of what happens. And, you know, what, you know cl- clear trend is more of a inward navel gazing moment for the United States, right? Uh, we're very preoccupied with ourselves. Uh, to Not only are we looking at ourselves in the mirror every day, but we're looking at what everyone is saying about everybody else in the mirror every day too. So that's definitely part of it. But, you know, you're right. There's, we, during, after 1945, the United States, accepted or took upon itself a grand global burden to try and make many things better around the world. And this wasn't just a purely disinterested behavior, right? It wasn't just the suddenly the, you know, the wellspring of noble feeling just poured out of the United States to to help heal the world in some grand religious initiative. It was also the fact the United States was competing with the Soviet Union and need to create a large alliance system to contain the Soviet Union, to prevent its expansion, particularly into Western Europe. And it particularly wanted countries that were wealthy and prosperous enough to defend themselves. So it didn't have to, you know, put as many boots on the ground. And so you see investment all around the world and you see that including places that weren't uh, China, right? You see that in Taiwan as well. But then as you had a global cold war where the United States felt like it was competing with for influence everywhere and the location of missiles and bases and all of these things and submarines and all this kind of stuff, created a global war, global competition for the globe for the first time, you saw the U.S. involve itself everywhere. Then after 1991, when it all fell, this, this strategic element to this whole system was sort of ditched or forgotten. And then meanwhile, all of the economic benefits and inducements, all the things that were there to try and make things better to support 
that strategic initiative, it, that became sort of an independent, autonomous process, right? It's just, oh, everyone's gonna, everything's gonna get better for everyone. And the truth is that was dependent on global demo- demographic factors and globalization and compatible uh, you know, labor and capital profiles in countries like the United States and China, that kind of stuff. And that era is ending, right? That era is ending, not just for the United States to China, but for the United States and a lot of under, other countries, and even Canada. The United States and Canada don't even get along in the same way anymore. So that's a tough time, right? I mean, that's a, that's a tough time. And unfortunately, the expectations of countries around the world and a lot of the feelings and hopes and dreams and prayers for a lot of people, just individuals around the world can't be met right now. And it's, it's a real challenge, uh, it, even in Americans who want to do more, right? I want to do more. I, I'm not actually, I do think if the United States had the resources to keep it, keep itself in order, keep it, get its own house in order and make things better for Americans, and it had surplus resources that ending some of the giant suffering all around the world isn't a terrible investment. Uh, but we're just, we're, just, we're just beyond that now. Like I was saying earlier, the United States couldn't keep everything together if it tried. So we're going to have to see how it crumbles. We're going to have to see what remains. And we're going to have to see the United States is going to you know, find its boys. <laughs> it's going to keep close to the fold. And then we're going to see how the United States itself muddles its way through this, right? There's major challenges on the social level, the economics, uh, politics. There's a lot of real changes going on. And it's, yeah, it, it's, it's a dynamic, like as the Chinese proverb sort of says, right? And every, you know, every, every, roughly speaking, in every crisis, there's an opportunity. And that's kind of the mentality we have to have because it's definitely a crisis of things going on, right? The, whether it's the, the ports, whether it's the asset prices, whether it's interest rates, all you go to, go anywhere, even just you know mental health problems and drug abuse and educational breakdowns, right? All this stuff is, is all bad. Uh, it's it's a challenge. So I, I really do think when you look at the scale of the problem, just just in the United States, just to for people to find a sense of stability and purpose and, and comfort and uh, investment in their own lives, in their own local communities and families, that by itself is really hard right now. So yeah, uh, it's, uh, that's, that's where the focus should probably should be for a while. If you can't, if you can't even do that, you're not gonna have much luck on the other stuff, which is already such a mess. As I've gone into more detail than anybody probably need to hear on this sort of <laughs> little interview, uh, it's more a mess than people think. Uh, yeah, I start with, uh, gotta, gotta line up your ducks, I think. Yeah. I think that's a great, great note to end on because I've kept you an hour and a half and I don't want to monopolize all of your time because I, I appreciate very much that you did the interview for me and for my my show and for all the audience listening. I think you brought, you know, a lot of things that people need to sit and listen to and, you know, maybe think on on what you want, you know, to see in the world and then maybe re-listen to this and try and take in that other perspective again because, you know, every time I think about you know, an issue that we've brought up, I think about it from a very like US centric mindset. And my listener base is broadly only half US. So like, there's a lot of international mindset out there. And I'd be interested to hear what people think on it. But like, you know, try and adopt a separate mindset to think about all of these issues as well. Not saying that you're not correct in your initial uh, assumption or your initial gut feeling. But you know, maybe give it a second thought. Yeah, we all got to try and open our minds a bit. I mean, we're going to be forced to, <laughs> right? I think just kind of the way things are going. And yeah, it's always a challenge. So if anybody heard things that just sounded crazy or out there, uh, yeah, I mean, just struggle with it and prove me wrong, right? It's a better way 
to do it than, than ignoring it entirely. Also, I could be totally wrong about everything. Just ignore it. But uh, yeah, I, I hope this was helpful for people. It's uh, it's worthwhile trying to get this perspective. And I'm trying to focus a bit on just, I know how hard it is to even kind of roll with, you know, when a guy who's overly knowledgeable about stuff starts talking about, it, it's hard to follow. And part of what I'm trying to do now is actually trying to give people their own framework for thinking about these things. Like, I think it's very difficult to fully know what to think about some, some guy who's saying all these things, right. Whether it's a talking head, whether it's my voice now or other people, the, the key thing we really need, I think right now is part of a, some sort of framework for how to interpret all this information in the first place. And so something I'm actually putting together is a, it'll be, it'll be a course that is going to try and give people this a, a ge geographic first foundation, right? So you see the physical foundation for this world, the actual world that's always been here, that everything has happened on. And then you know, try and give a sense of how things built up from there, how we got to where we are and where things are going to give people a sense of the patterns, to give them a sense of the, that there is more to this than just chaos, right? There is an actual pattern here and it is valuable to know and it can help you navigate more what's going on. So that's not really a plug for, uh, the course, cause it's not even ready yet, but it's more just a sense of one thing that might be really valuable for people to think about is just how, what are some better ways to get this information to approach it. Right. And maybe it's not the best idea to approach like really complex economic or political information, just head on. It's very difficult. And I personally had to spend, I basically had to ignore a lot of the, the world news for, for a long time until I really felt comfortable with the this, you know, the system I developed over many years kind of to get this into something useful for, for myself and then hopefully for other people. So that's a real challenge, especially now is the velocity of all these problems and, and the, 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 the intent, the immediacy of all the news just gets worse and worse. It's even more dangerous to just focus on all of the little things popping up, right? It's just a sense of like cognitive whack-a-mole where you don't, you know, and you, it never comes together, never creates a fuller, uh, fuller, more comprehensive picture. And that's just dangerous because it kind of leaves you a bit of a leaf in the wind. And we need less of those. We need uh, trees. <laughs> we need trees and not leaves in the wind, right? Yeah, definitely. Is there anything you want to plug? Yeah, definitely. So people should you know, reach out. You can find me on Twitter or my email. Uh, it's gmail. There's a podcast I have. It's called China Unraveled. There's currently 11 episodes. Everyone should check it out <laughs> and definitely rate it, review it if you like it. But it's cool. It talks about China. It explains some things, a lot of things you heard about here. Uh, there's also a YouTube channel that I'm just, just starting to do. I'm mainly doing live streams and stuff on it now, but there's actually a, a lot of content on there. People should check that out too. If you liked what I said, if you liked monologues of me kind of like this, uh, right now there's a good amount of those there. And once I'm done, oh, so the other thing is I've been writing a book. So I, this doesn't just come off of the top of my head. I've been writing a book for many years about China. It's full history, comprehensive development, and where, where things are headed. And hopefully that'll be out this year. So people should definitely tune in for that. You can sort of sign up for notifications on my website, which is www.jasonsheftel.com. So that's a number of places. I'd say the, yeah, the website's also got articles and stuff. So you can also look for that. You can look for interviews I've done. I do a, a good number. And then I think the, the course, you know, sign up for notifications, maybe about that, if that sounded interesting to people. And then probably the, the YouTube channel is the place to look. I'm, I'm there pretty often. And eventually there'll be more videos that have much better visuals. Once I have the book is done, people will be able to see a lot of the stuff we've talked about is so much better explained visually, right? Like I talked about different regions of China and there's something about it that's inherently visual, you know, maps. 
and it really helps. So hopefully there'll be more of that. And yeah, and then obviously if you're actually a business or an individual who has sort of any business or operations and stuff in China, I do a good amount of advising and consulting for that. So that's probably something separate that obviously you could contact me about, but that probably covers it. That's more than enough things, to, places to find me. Hey, it's a good, good thing to do. And as I always tell people on here, if you listen to China Unraveled, do go review it. It's so immensely helpful on any platform to just like get, you know, a bump in your visibility. So yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate immensely you coming on here and kind of sharing, you know, the very tip of the, the China iceberg with the audience, because I'm sure myself included, everyone here learned a lot about it. So I appreciate a lot. And thank you very much. Thank you. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Just Dumb Enough podcast. Remember to like, rate, and share this podcast wherever you are listening to it from. I know it doesn't seem like much, but it really means a lot if you just click like the heart button or the star button. It really does change a lot for the podcast. As I said at the top of the episode, I have an interview done and ready with an emergency dispatcher. That'll go up as our next episode. After that, I've got some more experts lined up to do interviews with the show, but I think my audience in particular might be most excited to hear that Matthew Stapley from the Psychic Medium episode a while back will be on for a new episode, where we talk about another of his expertises in dealing with grief and grieving properly. If you have any questions for him or any other guests that I'm going to have on the show, send them over to dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com. You can also send guest or topic requests that way. I'm going to be doing some work on the dumbenoughpodcast.com website to make it look better, show my guest schedule and some other features. It also does have a form that you can fill out to ask questions as well. All that alongside the updates coming to YouTube and Patreon and everything else. It's a little exhausting doing this as a single-man operation, but as the internet meme says, it's not much, but it's honest work. Also, just as a reminder, I've got a trip to Atlanta, Georgia coming up from the 10th to the 15th of March. So hit me up if you're in that area and you want to hang out and do whatever is fun to do in the area. I had a lot of fun in the past with the Florida and New Orleans cruise, and hopefully I'll get uh, Houston, Texas rescheduled here soon, probably the end of March or beginning of April. But I'll let you know because I have quite a few Texas listeners that I am excited to meet. Oh boy, this is looking to be the longest outro ever. All right, so real quick, here's the rankings for February's. I'll have the final numbers for this month in the next episode, which will definitely be up in March because it is the last day of February right now. So number one, the U.S., specifically Oregon and California. Number two, Canada, specifically Quebec, which I thought until recently spoke mostly French, but I have been informed that a heavy percent of the population also speaks English, which is neat. Uh, Number three, the U.K., just literally two listeners below Canada which is so close, it is nearly splitting hairs. Number four, and brand new on this list, is Estonia, which after doing my geography homework, I learned is much further north than I thought. And number five, Brazil, bumping Germany down into a weird tie with New Zealand and Japan. What a world. Alrighty, let's end this episode before I talk about other things outside of the show. I'll see you in the next episode. Bye-bye.